Good morning, Grace. Open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 7. We're continuing our summer series in the Psalms, the soundtrack of our lives. So we pick up where we left off two weeks ago in Psalm chapter 7. Let's pray and then we will begin. Father, thank you once again for your great love. Thank you that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Your mercies are new every morning, God, and You are faithful, you are steadfast, you never change. Sadly, our hearts change, our affections for you change. Sometimes we're boiling hot, red hot, on fire, in love with Jesus, and sometimes we're cold and distant, but you remain faithful. So God, we ask you now, by the power of your Spirit, to recharge and refuel us again, to trust and to rest in your sovereignty over everything that happens in this world. May you do that by the power of the Spirit. Open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your word. For your glory and for our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Mr. Schmidt recently arrived in a small Bavarian village, which lies eight miles northwest of Munich, a picturesque, delightful little spot, one time known for its scenery, but more recently related to other events having to do with some of the less positive pursuits of man, human slaughter, torture, misery, and anguish. Mr. Schmidt, as we will soon perceive, has a vested interest in the ruins of a concentration camp. For once, some 17 years ago, his name was Gunther Lutza. He held the rank of a captain in the SS. He was a black-uniformed, strutting animal whose function in life was to give pain. And like his colleagues of the time, he shared the one affliction most common amongst that breed known as Nazis. He walked the earth without a heart. And now former SS Captain Lutza will revisit his old haunts, satisfied perhaps that all that is awaiting him in the ruins on the hill is an element of nostalgia. What he does not know, of course, is that a place like Dachau cannot exist only in Bavaria. By its nature, by its very nature, it must be one of the populated areas of the Twilight Zone. That was Rod Serling's opening monologue to Death's Head Revisited, the 74th episode of The Twilight Zone, in case you were wondering. Perhaps a synopsis of the episode may help you as well, in case you're not as devoted to the show as I am. And in case you're going to go home and turn on Netflix to see if you can watch Death's Head Revisited, the 74th episode of The Twilight Zone. Sometime over the last few weeks, Netflix decided to pull seasons three and five, so you'll have to go to YouTube if you want to watch this episode. Here's a synopsis, though, for those of you who aren't as dedicated to the show as I am. A man calling himself Mr. Schmidt has arrived in a small Bavarian village near Munich, After checking into a hotel, he decides to head to the remains of the Dachau concentration camp. Upon strolling through the remains of the camp, Mr. Schmidt meets a thin man in striped shirt and pants, a man who calls himself Alfred Becker. 
Becker refers to Schmidt by his true name of Captain Gunther Lutze. Lutze tries to deny this name, but Becker tells him that it is his true name. Lutze tries to ignore Becker, but no matter where he goes, Becker appears. It is shortly afterward that Lutze realizes that he had killed Becker in that concentration camp many years earlier. The ghost of the former inmate of the camp is then joined by others who were killed under the captain's orders, where they put him on trial and provide sentence for his crimes. Lutze attempts to escape, but he finds the gates to the camp locked. Finally, Becker appears to Captain Lutze to tell him that he has been found guilty of war crimes. Through unseen forces, Captain Lutze feels the pain that he himself had inflicted on these Jewish inmates many years before. And as he collapses to the ground, Becker says to Lutze, This is not hatred. This is retribution. This is not revenge. This is justice. But this is only the beginning, Captain. Only the beginning. Your final judgment will come from God. Lutza is later found at the concentration camp and taken to a mental hospital. As the medical personnel prepare to leave, the doctor who examined Captain Lutze asks about the concentration camp. Dachau, why does it still stand? Why do we keep it standing? Psalm 7 could function as a sister script to the 74th episode of the Twilight Zone. Psalm 7 needs to be in the needs to be in the Bible. We need it to be in the Bible because Psalm 7 stands alongside the Nazi concentration camps to remind us that justice will be served one day, to remind us that judgment is coming. Psalm 7 is in the Bible to tell you that you better make sure you're included in the righteous Psalm 7 is in the Bible to tell you that there is a final judgment to come and you better escape it. And you can escape that judgment by inviting Jesus into your kidney. If you want to escape the final judgment, escape eternity in hell, then you need to invite Jesus into your kidney. More on that in a moment. But what Psalm 7 is trying to speak to us today And it's our big idea is this, trust that nothing gets past God. Psalm 7 is saying you can trust, you can bank your hope on the fact that everything that happens in this world is seen by the all-seeing eye of God. Psalm 7 was written by David as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to encourage the people of God that no matter what happens in this life, no matter what people do, in the end, justice will be served. From the Christian employee who doesn't get a raise precisely because they are a Christian to the Trayvon Martins and the George Zimmermans all the way to the Adolf Hitlers of this world. Nothing will get past God. Nothing. In the end, every wrong will be righted. And you can trust in that even if you don't see it in this life. 
David is praying for justice in Psalm 7. He's bothered by some guy named Cush. You may have noticed that in the heading of the psalm, which says, A Shagion of David, which he's saying to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. We don't know exactly what happened between Cush and David. The Bible does not tell us. Oh, we're curious. We want to know. Inquiring minds want to know what, what's happening between David and Cush. But the Bible does not tell us. All we get in Psalm 7 is a prayer of David for justice. And I think what David says here in Psalm 7 should be enough to comfort our hearts that nothing will get past God. That one day justice will be served. So look at verses 1 through 2 and hear David's prayer. Hear the word of the Lord. O Lord, O Yahweh, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. First notice that this is vintage David. All that we have known of him so far in the book of Psalms is that David had drama all the days of his life. He was surrounded by problems. He was always in the middle of some trial. It sounds like you and me, doesn't it? And that's comforting. Oh, it may seem strange to derive comfort from the fact that the people of God will always suffer in this life, that we will always have problems, that we will always have trials and tribulations. But it is comforting, isn't it? It's comforting because we know we're not alone. We're with David. We are in good company. But we're also in good company because we have the Lord And that's why David can say time after time, as he does in verse 1, in you do I take refuge. The Hebrew verb here is a perfect tense, suggests that David sought refuge in the Lord in the past, and he remains there. David has figured out, he figured out a long time ago that he could find refuge and safety in Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. And so he prays in verses 1 through 2 that the Lord would save him from his enemies. But understand this about David's enemies. His enemies aren't nerdy little computer geeks that are threatening to hack into his bank account. David's enemies are like hungry lions who woke up craving Israelite king for breakfast. And that's why David says in verse 2, Less like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces. David's enemies woke up craving David. So picture Cush the Benjamite at the local diner. What's on the menu today, Flo? Well, Cush, our special today is roasted Israelite king served with a lemon aioli on a bed of lentils with a side of steamed veggies. Mmm, that sounds good. I'll have that. David's enemies want to sink their teeth into David, rip him to pieces, and feast on his soul. Maybe the heading to Psalm 7 should not read Cush the Benjamite, but Cush the Canamalite. David needs the Lord to intervene, or he will be ripped to shreds by the lions, his enemies, like an unaware gazelle. On the plains of Africa. But whatever is going on between David and Cush, David knows that he may have brought something to the table. David knows that, that when there is conflict, there's a good chance that both parties involved may be in the wrong. Which is why he prays the way he does in verses 3 through 5. He says, O Yahweh, my God, 
If I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Whatever accusations Cush the Benjamite was bringing against David, David declares his innocence. But David is open to blame. He knows that he is a sinner. He knows that he is not perfect. But David is open to being wrong. So he prays, if I've done this, if I've done wrong, if I've retaliated, if I'm in the wrong, Lord, then let my enemy, let Cush crush me. It's as if David already knew what the prophet Jeremiah would later proclaim in Jeremiah 17.10. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. It's as if David knows, and he does, that the Lord tests the hearts and minds. Here in Jeremiah 17.10, the word for mind When it says that the Lord tests the mind, it's the Hebrew word, which is literally kidneys. Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, searches the heart and tests the kidneys of every human being. And that's what David is asking the Lord to do here. It's what David will say later in Psalm 7, which we'll look at in a moment. So hold your horses and your kidneys. I'll explain to you in a moment why the title of this sermon is Inviting Jesus into Your Kidney. David is saying that if he's done wrong, then Cush should come crush him. You can pray that, like David, when you come to grips with the fact that Jesus knows your heart. And that truth can bring you comfort and it can put the fear of God in you. David knows that even he doesn't escape the all-seeing eye of God. And David knows that Cush and all his enemies cannot escape the all-seeing eye of God. And that's why David probably put a post-it note on his bathroom mirror that said, Trust that nothing gets past God. And when you and I realize that truth and we begin to trust in it, then we'll start praying like David in Psalm 7. Look at verses 6 through 7 and see how this hope in God causes David to pray. Arise, O Yahweh, arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. You see, there's something about taking refuge in Jesus that makes you pray like this. There's something about understanding and trusting that God has appointed a judgment, a day of judgment, Allah Hebrews 9.27, that makes you pray and ask God to get busy judging evil, wicked people now. Arise, Lord. Get up. They're coming after me with fury. Show up now, start judging these people, gather them around, and lay down the law, Lord. You ought to underline and highlight verses 6 through 7. You ought to put them on a post-it note on your bathroom mirror. You ought to make these verses your life verses. Why? 
Because it's a gospel promise from Jesus that evil, wicked, and perverted men will be held accountable. That means that the Adolf Hitlers of this world who torture people and starve them and experiment on them and put them in gas chambers to die a slow death, it means that they will face judgment one day. It means that the Herman Gosnells who abort babies alive and then snap their necks to kill them off, that they will face judgment. It means that the monsters behind human trafficking, those who sell little boys and little girls into the sex market, it means that they will face judgment. It means that the greedy financial gurus who cheat and rob people of their retirement and life savings, they will face judgment. It means that the child abuser and the drive-by shooter and the pedophile that lives on your street, it means that they too will face judgment. You may need Psalm 7 someday. You may need Psalm 7 today. You need Psalm 7 because if the decisions and choices that wicked, evil, perverted people make in this world, if if they don't get judged by a holy God, then how are your choices any different from theirs? If evil, wicked people choose to do evil and they're never held accountable, if there are pedophiles and drive-by shooters and people selling people into human trafficking, if they're never held accountable, then how do their decisions differ from yours? If there's no appointed judgment, then what they do is no different than you choosing to drink a caramel macchiato at Starbucks rather than your usual caramel frappuccino. If there is no judgment to come, then their choices are no different than you choosing mayonnaise over mustard on your cheeseburger. Psalm 7 comes along in the Psalter, in the book of Psalms, to say that decisions, choices, and actions matter. Psalm 7 says that it matters if someone does evil. Psalm 7 says that it matters if someone leaves a bomb in a backpack on the sidewalk during a marathon. Psalm 7 is screaming at us to trust that nothing gets past God. Psalm 7 is telling us that we can trust that God will judge every human being one day. But David wants the Lord to get busy judging people now. Look at what he says in verses 8 through 10. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. David wants a little bit of the already, not yet, that scholars and commentators talk about. He wants the Lord to start judging, to judge his enemy Cush and all of his toadies, and even to judge David himself. When David says, judge me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. David is asking the Lord to vindicate him. To show Cush that David is in the right and that David has done nothing to cause this situation. David declares his innocence. 
his righteousness, his integrity. But here's a question you and I must wrestle with. As we read the Psalms and as we read Psalm 7, how can David, who is a sinner, and he acknowledges that, how can David say that he has integrity within him? Dr. Alan Ross explains in his commentary on the Psalms. Someone who has integrity, who is called blameless, enjoys an untroubled relationship with the Lord and is welcome in the sanctuary. When a psalmist claims to be blameless or perfect, it means that he is in the proper spiritual condition to commune with God in his sanctuary. He is sound, complete, and morally unimpaired. He may have sinned, but he knew how to deal with sin according to the law. On the whole, because he is a faithful believer, he acts with integrity. He is whole. In other words, there's a difference between David and his enemies. Just as there is a difference between any member of the German SS Gestapo and your average believer here at Grace. Both are sinners, but one can claim innocence. One can claim integrity. One can claim righteousness because of Jesus. And that's what David is saying here. So what is the difference between the wicked and the righteous? How do you tell them apart? How do you distinguish a wicked person from a righteous person? You can tell the wicked and the righteous. You can tell the wicked and the godly apart by looking at their kidneys. The kidneys are the key. That's what verse 9 says. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. The Hebrew reads literally, you who test the heart and kidneys. It gets reversed in the English, mind equals heart in Hebrew, and heart equals the kidney in Hebrew. So the Hebrew reads, you who test the heart and the kidneys. The heart and the kidneys were viewed in ancient Israel as the seat of a person's will, their conscience, and their moral character. So the righteous person is the one who has had kidney surgery. They have been changed, transformed by the gospel in their innermost being. They are made right with a holy God. He is their shield, and he saves them from condemnation and judgment. Because he is the righteous God. Psalm 7, 9 is saying that if you want to escape everlasting judgment for your sin and your rebellion against a holy God, then you need to ask Jesus into your kidney. And if you don't ask Jesus into your kidney or into your heart, as we like to say in evangelicalism, ask Jesus into your heart, better language would be, if you don't repent and turn from your sins and trust in and submit to Jesus the King, then he will be your judge. And Jesus won't be a judge who sits behind a bench wearing a black robe and holding a gavel in his hand. He's a little bit different. You think Judge Judy is tough? You watch Judge Judy on TV and you think she's tough? Listen to how David describes Judge Jesus in verses 11 and 13. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. 
If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Jesus is not interested in wielding a gavel. No, his weapons of choice are deadly weapons, a sword that he sharpens every day. And this is no plastic sword. He has his bow drawn and he is ready to shoot fiery arrows. Why? Because he's angry. He's angry all the time, David says. He feels indignation every day. He's angry at the evil, wicked men who roam the earth and take advantage of the weak and the helpless. And this may make some of you uncomfortable. You don't want Jesus to be this way. Oh, sure, Jesus, you can have a sword, but make it a plastic sword. Play with your bow and arrows, Jesus, but tell me it's a toy set. Tell me, Jesus, that you went shopping at Toys R Us. I don't want that kind of God. I want a God who will dispense judgment in this life and the next. I want a God who will eternally punish evil men and women. Don't you? I want a God who offers repentance to sinners who have rebelled. And that would be all of us. I want a God who sends his son Jesus to take our punishment, to be declared guilty for us, who absorbs the wrath of God for us. I want a God who takes his sharp sword and plunges it into his son on the cross. I want a God who has his readied bow in his hand and sends flaming arrows into his son on the cross. I want a God who uses deadly weapons on his son for me. Don't you want that kind of God? If you don't, then you need to finish reading Psalm 7. Because Psalm 7 has been beating the same drum for 13 verses and trying to convince us and encourage us and comfort us and strike fear in us and cause us to believe and to trust that nothing gets past God. Judgment is coming and no one can escape it. Every human being has an appointment with God. And you can't call God like you call your doctor or your dentist and say, I can't make it tomorrow. You have an appointment with him, and there's no way to get out of it. Evil, wicked men will not escape. We see that in the remaining verses. Look at verses 14 through 16. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out. And falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head. And on his own skull his violence descends. These verses should warn you if you don't repent. Or give you encouragement if you are a disciple of Jesus. They are reminding us that it may take a while. It may seem like evil men are getting away with things as they dream up evil, as David says, as they get pregnant and give birth to their evil plans. But David is saying they can't hide from God. 
Oh, sure, they do their evil deeds. They kill people, dispose of bodies in graves that they have dug. They burn them up in gas chambers and concentration camps, and they bury them, but they can't hide. They're just digging their own graves. And while they're digging their graves and shoveling dirt, Jesus will show up and shove them in. All the sin and evil that they dream up in their brains will end up cracking their skulls in the end. Doesn't that encourage you? It should. It did, David. It should encourage you. That those who do evil, wicked things in this world, that they're not going to get away with it. It encouraged David. Look at verse 17. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. When you take refuge in the God of Psalm 7, it kind of has a way of turning you into a singer. When you take the truth of Psalm 7 to heart, or should I say kidney, then you will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. When you take the truth of Psalm 7 and you rub it into your pores, you can't help but give thanks. And if you've never invited Jesus into your kidney, into your heart, you might want to do that right now. You might want to ask God to forgive you. And to trust that Jesus lived the life that you could never live. And that he died the death that you deserve because you are born an evil, wicked person. That's how you escape eternal punishment. That's how you're safe at the final judgment when you stand before God. You turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus. That's how you invite Jesus into your kidney. You overcome at the final judgment because Jesus overcame through his life, death, and resurrection. And so Revelation twelve eleven can be true of you today. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death. You can be safe at the final judgment and have Jesus stand there for you and say, I've taken care of everything, Father. Psalm 7 has taught us that the wicked will not escape. They will get away with nothing. They dig their pits and then they fall into them. Justice comes along and knocks them down into the pit that they have been digging. They're digging their own grave, their own eternal grave. And into their grave they will go. They will go where they have buried their conscience. God will see to it. Nothing gets past God. And that's what Psalm 7 wants you to know. And that's what the Twilight Zone wants you to know. The doctor who treated Captain Gunther Lutze at the end of Death's Head Revisited asked about the concentration camp. Dachau, why does it still stand? Why do we keep it standing? So why do we keep concentration camps around? Why don't we destroy them? Psalm 7 helps us to answer that question. It's why we turn to Psalm 7 and delight in the God 
who has a sword drawn and is ready to shoot fiery arrows at the wicked and execute justice. Perhaps it's worth concluding this sermon with Rod Serling's closing monologue. He concluded the 74th episode of The Twilight Zone with these words. So if you don't mind, I'd like to give him the mic because he says it better than I can. There is an answer to the doctor's question. All the Dachau's must remain standing. The Dachau's, the Beltsons, the Buchenwalds, the Auschwitzes, all of them. They must remain standing because they are a monument to a moment in time when some men decided to turn the earth into a graveyard. Into it they shoveled all of their reason, their logic, their knowledge, but worst of all, their conscience. And the moment we forget this, the moment we cease to be haunted by its remembrance, then we become the grave diggers. Something to dwell on and to remember, not only in the twilight zone, but wherever men walk God's earth. Let's pray. Father, Psalm 7 is such a heavy psalm because we know that we're born wicked, evil people, and it's only by your grace that you saved us, God. But it's heavy because we know many people who don't give a rip about you. And they don't delight in you, and they don't treasure you. And it's heavy, too, because, God, there are people here who have suffered at the hands of evil, wicked men and women. And they struggle with this every day, wondering, will justice ever be served? It's heavy, God, because there are people involved with human trafficking, abortion, pedophiles, drive-by shooters, greedy financial people. The list goes on, and our heart is heavy because of the way sin has wrecked this world. So would you give your grace to those who are struggling to forgive people, your grace to those who are struggling as they wait to see justice come. We do ask you, Father, catch those wicked, evil people in their traps, those who sell human beings like they're a product, those who kill unborn babies. Stop them in their tracks. Push them into the graves that they are digging, God. Come and bring judgment, we ask. We want them to know you, to turn from their sins and trust in Jesus, God. But if they don't, we want justice. So it's a heavy psalm. But God, it's a hope-filled psalm. That for those of us, and that's all of us who are born wicked, evil sinners, we deserve your wrath, your judgment. We deserve eternity in hell forever. And yet by your grace, you look upon the life, death, and resurrection of your, ju- of your son and you say, my justice is satisfied. And we thank you for that, for what Jesus has done for us. Thank you for those who trust in him that we will be safe at the final judgment because of Jesus. We will overcome because of the blood of the Lamb and the word 
of our testimony and because we love not our lives even unto death. In Jesus' name, amen.